2016, gay pride come alive. Let every color of our rainbow signify that we are righteously proud. Proud to be part of a community that fights for the rights to be seen, heard, and therefore we live out loud. To the butch studs and those who go both ways, dykes on bikes and the down low who are secretly gay. To the queer, the trendy, and raving homosexuals, peace and love to transgenders whose beauty I find exceptional. Like Cadillacs and Beamers, with trendsetters and icon leaders, we've been crucified, slanderized, and publicly persecuted. But tough as leather, we stick together. Gay pride is worldwide and absolutely undisputed. Hello and welcome back to Season 2 of the Community Exchange, a podcast run by staff at API Wellness Center. My name is Janelle Tryon, and I'm here with Melissa Margolis. For people tuning in for the first time to this podcast, you will hear me and my fellow coworkers' voices as we talk with different individuals about their work and experiences in the field. We will be bringing the voices and often untold stories to you. Each episode will be between 20 to 30 minutes, so you can listen to them while on the go, on your lunch break, or during your commute. Our capacity building work is supported by funding from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Division of HIV AIDS Prevention. The views expressed here are solely those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent or reflect the official views of API Wellness Center or of the CDC. We are funded to work with community-based organizations in the areas of HIV testing, prevention with positive programs, and condom distribution. If you are interested in our capacity building services or have any questions, please feel free to contact us. This season on the Community Exchange, we will be focusing on the structural factors that are foundational to the lives of so many of our clients, but are oftentimes not the focus of the conversation. Even if we lived in a world where food and housing could be prescribed along medications, clinics would still remain inaccessible to most communities. To identify the most salient issue, it is essential to go to the systemic route, which helps us explain why marginalized communities have a difficulty accessing the healthcare system, and how this inaccessibility leads to health disparities. We need to go all the way upstream to identify the obstruction causing class 5 rapids that even the most seasoned providers struggle with. This season, we will look at the rocks in the past for our clients, as well as hear their stories of community and resilience. We hope you can join us on this journey. In episode one of season two, we brought together the wisdom of four different individuals to talk about the expansiveness of community, experiences. In episode one of season two, we brought together the wisdom of four different individuals to talk about the expansiveness of community, experiences with healthcare providers, and the ways in which providers can sometimes act as family. Over the next few episodes, you will hear the voices of these individuals. We start today's episode with Sean Higgins' poem on San Francisco's queer community. Throughout the episode, you will also hear Lorena Jackson, Scott Carlisle, and Blue Williams. I am also joined by Alona Margiata and Jimmy Edward Hill, who are both invaluable parts of this episode. Thank you again for tuning in to the Community Exchange. And now back to Sean with the rest of her poem. We're above the average, a special, unique class, dignified and distinguished, but still we back it up and shake that ass. So vote yes on same sex if you believe in marriage. That way, straight or gay, health benefits you shall inherit it. To my brothers and sisters living with HIV, the only real virus is those that vote on proposition bigotry. So don't ask, don't tell, don't tarnish the military. I say protest and prevail and get with this commentary. There is no other species on earth like the LGBT that was beautifully designed this way at birth. So let the purple, red, yellow, blue, and green represent the world gay pride means, and that's pride. Michelle's poem here so beautifully captures the joy and the pleasure found from identifying with the community. Regardless of whether or not you identify as part of the LGBTQ community that she so eloquently describes, 
we can all envision a similar group that we pride ourselves on being a part of. Few words carry so many meanings and invoke so much positive connotation and memories as the word community. Earliest definitions of community were based on shared location, but as our world morphs, our definitions have become more expansive. Sean here points out the abstract ambiguity of this term, community. Oh, God. You know what? It is such a blanket word. I mean, such a just up for grabs. I'm connected to the community as far as just having people that I've known forever. I have noticed that a lot of times you will find transgenders willing to help other transgenders, perhaps before somebody who's not transgender. And I've, I've seen a lot of queens of transgenders actually extend their hand or their knowledge or, you know what I mean, any type of uh, resource that can help a girl get together, you know, off the mm -hmm. streets or whatever. The elements of support here in Sean's view of community really speak to this underlying sentiment of feeling a sense of community. This term, sense of community, is actually pretty new. It was coined in 1986 by David McMillan and David Chavez to describe, quote, a feeling that members have of belonging, a feeling that members matter to one another and to the group, and a shared faith that the members' needs will be met through their commitment. They identified then four elements that make up this term, membership, influence, integration and fulfillment of needs, and a shared emotional connection. In this next segment, you can really hear how these segments play out in the life of Lorena. My name is Lorena Jackson. I came to San Francisco from Los Angeles, and I was I came out here with nothing. I had the clothes on my back and like $10 in my pocket. What has it been like in San Francisco? I know a lot of people come here because... You know, people assume that it's the kind of the capital for queers and, and trans folks. And do you feel that sense of community here? Um, I do. But when I when I came out here, I was in a drug addiction, and my drug addiction led me to the streets and to uh, me prostitutes and to uh, get money. I saw different trans girls, but they wasn't as friendly as I was. Um, they do they they've been doing their own thing. Now I have a couple trans friends. Do you feel like moving here has allowed you to move more fully into yourself, not just because of San Francisco being what it is, but because you had this break from LA and from your past there? Yeah, I don't really, I don't really try to be somebody that I'm not. I am who I am, and I'm much happier being a transgender and living my life as a woman. Lorena highlights this concept of membership with her experiences in both San Francisco and LA, as well as her sense of belonging and identification with the trans community. As we know is true for most of us, this feeling of community transcends identification with just oneity. For all of the individuals interviewed here, there is a strong identification with many groups and many communities, and a deep investment in the city of San Francisco itself, where many folks have found refuge in living their lives in this deeply integrated world. What are the opportunities and benefits of living here? Many. I came from San Diego. I'm Blue Buddha here. In San Diego, I could never have been the Blue Buddha who has had the different jobs, sat on boards, sat on the Human Rights Commission, as advisory committee, you know what I mean? I, I wouldn't have been able to do that back then in San Diego. That was not a possibility, not as a black man. That would not have happened. That happened here. The one, one of the things that I've loved about San Francisco for such a very long time, and I'm not sure if that energy is here as much as it needs to be, was that in San Francisco, you can be whoever you want. If you want to be homeless and smoke crack, you can do that. If you want to be a CEO and smoke crack, 
<laughs> you can do that. <laughs> you could be homeless and not smoke crack and see you but you can do that. And this place su- supported people and allowed you to explore those parts of you, who you are. Get down and dirty and go through your shit and let it out and then come out anew. And you, you can be forgiven and seen as that new person. The city had that. I'm not sure if that still exists here. It does in small pieces, but not as much as it needs to. I think there's definitely a lot of people who come here because of HIV services. Definitely still people come here because it's queer. It's not the same that it used to be, though. And everything changes, right? Things evolve. That's just, that's just what's going to happen. And maybe to some degree it doesn't need to be the same. However, until we've gained more equality across the board, then I, it, it makes a difference. So yeah, people still come here for that. And then, I mean, this new crowd of people who have come in for the tech world, though, have no idea that San Francisco is San Francisco, and they don't care. And that is affecting. It's, it, it is part of the housing crisis, because people don't care. It is part of, oh, we don't want to see these homeless, crazy people in our neighborhood. That's a part of San Francisco. If you get rid of that, you're getting rid of part of the city. That's part of our, our foundation. Lou really speaks to the expansiveness of this idea of membership, the way that the boundaries of San Francisco create a sense of belonging and historically an almost geographic shared emotional connection. Lou points out that the shared participation in the community that is San Francisco is changing and it no longer looks the same. Next, we will hear from Scott about how this change looks. If you've been here since 1967, how San Francisco has changed. Oh gosh, drastic. What do you think about the change in demographic in San Francisco with the influx of tech jobs and the prices going through the roof? And It's crazy. It shouldn't be happening. Because, I mean, back then, it was like $60 a week for a hotel. Now it's two-something. You know, you don't even have a bathroom. All that's just making it unbearable for the people who don't make much money. It's not right. And once you get that money, you have to spend it all on housing. Yeah. There's nothing. And then there's nothing left. And you're supposed to survive off that. I mean, sure, they got low-income housing, but still, that's a lot of money. I haven't checked for $900 a month. You might get 200 for food after you're left over. And that doesn't, anybody knows 200 don't last a month. There's no way. So a lot of people choose to live outside. Sad, but I guess it's the way it is. What Scott is describing here isn't just a singular tale, but one of many stories in a city where 3500 is the median price to rent a one-bedroom apartment. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition's out-of-reach report just this year, in 2016, found that the annual income needed to afford a one-bedroom apartment is $72,562. Yet, the average supplement security income, or SSI, in San Francisco County is just $889 a month. As all of us here know, as do many of you who are tuning in locally, these staggering statistics and experiences are fundamentally changing the fabric and the concept of community here in San Francisco. What about in terms of housing and you know things that are going on in San Francisco right now? I know that I mean, you've been here for how many years? Been here since God. I was born and raised. Since you were born, okay. Yeah. Have you noticed a shift in the city in terms of who's here, what kind of opportunities are available, and has it affected you? I think I didn't really understand the, the dynamic of housing 
until I was homeless. But I think that if you really put in the footwork and be patient if you can't be, things will work out, especially in San Francisco as far as housing. The only thing I, I want to change, I want to change my location. You know, I want a, an apartment where I don't have to sign visitors in and all that old manage, you know. Um, so you're permanently housed right now? Yes, I am, and I'm thankful. Thank you, Jesus. Um, but you have you have to, there's certain rules that you have to Yeah, you know, and this. like sometimes, you know, even though everything is on site, sometimes I find it kind of intrusive. Mm -hmm. You know, when you knock on the door, it's a nurse, okay, girl, what? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, hey, be sleeping on the ground or in a tent or in a shelter. But you're paying for, so you're paying a percentage of your income for this housing. Yes. Right, so it, you know, you, it's not like something you're getting for free. No, no. It's your housing. Yeah, you know, and it's a trip because by the time my rent is paid, my storage is paid, you know, everything is basically gone, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. you got to really, well, what am I going to do for the rest of the month? Mm -hmm. You know, so I understand why girls sometimes be like, oh, girl, you got your spot or whatever. You still out here on the track now and again. I mean, you know, you can't live without money. You can't, you know, a house takes food from food to toilet paper, cleaning products, just, you know, everything. And then if you add on a phone bill, there are opportunities for low-income individuals to access permanent housing in San Francisco. However, as Sean points out, once someone secures permanent housing, living isn't always easy. When things like accessing housing are an ongoing battle, support becomes instrumental to survival. Healthcare providers often wear many hats, providing more than just care within the four walls of this organization. They not only provide a listening ear, but also a human connection and a sense of care. What has been your experience with providers here, for the most part, in San Francisco? I've been going to Dr. Lin's ever since I've been out here. So I've been out here for two years, and I've been seeing Dr. Lin. I really have to see no outside support, but I've been in API for, uh, since 2014, and it's now 2016, so two years that I've been out here. The health facilities helped me a great lot. Miss Sabina put me in Kenny House, the Kenny Hotel, and then she helped me out and got me in program. She the one who got me in Ferguson Place. He wrote me when I was in jail. She just been there for me. This is like a home to me. It's like, I don't know nothing else. It's like, I come here every Thursday, willingly. We have a meeting, a women's group every Thursday, and I attend there. And I come to see Dr. Lynn faithfully every Thursday. As Lorena just described, that singular interaction can become a routine. And this routine connection with providers fulfills a need for warmth and community even within the power dynamics of a healthcare setting. Next, Scott identifies a similar journey to finding this connection and describes the way he developed a community in San Francisco, a community that included his doctor. Brought you originally to the API Wellness Center and to San Francisco. What brought me here is Deb, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Do you want to tell the fine people who Deb is? <laughs> <laughs> My doctor. She's good people. She's easy to work with. And I guess, they, I guess they were looking for me for months before they found me. Who's they? You, the API. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know, but once, since I got here, it's been pretty easy. When did you come to San Francisco? Oh, God, 1967. Really? Where were you from? East Bay. Oh, okay. What, what brought you here in 1967? Dope. Doing it, selling it, buying it? Both. 
Yes. You tell me as you go away with that. And how long were you on the streets before you were housed this time? 15 months. And then over the years since 1967, were there other bouts of homelessness? No. No, it was just the past 15 months. So what happened from that point? What what brought you there? Well, combination of drugs and just living off $900 a month. Right. And the $900 a month was coming from SSI. SSI. Yeah. So you started using in 1967 around then? Yeah, somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. How old were you? First time I got high was 12. You were 12. So what was going on for you at 12? Doing heroin. <laughs> what brought you to heroin at age 12? <laughs> Just tried it. Well, yeah. Falling in love with it. Yeah. But, um... The high of all highs, but they don't show the dark side of it. Right. It's what you don't find out until later. And who introduced you to it? It was all over the place. In the East Bay, too? No, here. Back then, I was bouncing between Lake Tahoe and here. So, both of those places. Mm. It was everywhere in Lake Tahoe, also? Well, in the part that I stayed in, yeah. Yeah. But... Other than that, no, you know. Yeah. There's just one little town up there that's got all the dope. I guess I'm curious what your relationship was like growing up with your parents. Black sheep. You were the black sheep? Do you have yeah. siblings? Yeah. Two sisters, one younger and one older. Why were you the black sheep? Because I was the only one in trouble. <laughs> 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 the only one doing anything. My sisters always were did the norm the norm just didn't interest you no it didn't it's too boring how has it been since you were coming here or i guess since deb was coming to you why if if people were looking for you why at that time were you found i guess why did you let yourself be found you know i went down at 50 ivy street and i just happened to run into her because i only met her the one time and then uh she goes, man, I've been looking all over for you. It's strange, but that's how she got me to start coming up here to API. Were you taking medicine at the time? No. How long had you been positive? For a long time, 15, 20 years. But I'd been off my meds, and it was the first time off, so I was sick. How long had you been off meds? 15 months. The whole time you were homeless? Yeah. So for people who <laughs> might not get the connection, why for you weren't you taking your medicine when you were homeless? It's hard to carry, it's hard to take them religiously. You got too much other stuff to worry about. You want to travel light when you're out there. If you got pills, you're more, like, more likely as a target for somebody because they don't know what they are at first. It can make it dangerous, so just decided not to take them. Did you feel a difference when you did start taking them? Definitely. And what has your experience been like being positive in this city? I think a lot of people come here because it's a beacon of HIV care. Well, that, <clears throat> and I mean, it's geared for some people with low income. I mean, you can get help here other cities you can't. You know, you have a lot of help with this program, the home program. They come to you, so it's, it makes it even easier to do your care. Because you don't have to worry about making the appointment. They'll find you. Deb came in my house four times. And that's unheard of a doctor coming to you in the tent going in a hotel. That's just 
unheard of. There's something about this program too because it comes to you that you know there's a shift when you start coming to the clinic. What has been the shift for you and do you feel like it's changed anything to actually come to a clinic oh, space? got me back on track. Yeah. I'm clean, taking my meds, got TV and stuff, so I'm doing good. <laughs> it's a lot better in the street. If it wasn't for the program, I probably wouldn't be here. Here, Scott highlights a small gesture on the part of the provider, but for him, this act offered a sense of intimacy. From the other perspective, as a provider, Blue outlines the elements providers need to think about in providing holistic, whole-person care. I was on GA once in my life, a couple times in my life, and just how I was treated. It seems like a lot of the people there that work there, not all, but there's a good portion of folks who work there who are just so burned out and or just don't understand trauma or don't have a, a sense of other kinds of community, right? I mean... That was stigmatizing as hell for so many people, just because the people in charge had no idea. They had no clinical experience or acumen whatsoever. Now, where it's been protective, hmm. I would say in some sense, some of the programs, there was protection, right? If you look at, look at Latino programs, if you look at the needle exchange program, I think the programs are protective. I think it was the, just the leadership that made things stigmatizing because they would bother to see a different way. It had to be their way or no way. So there was no compromise. Mm -hmm. But the programs, I think the folks who work in the programs protect their folks and they try to alleviate as much stigmatization as possible. We'll dive more deeply into this theme in later episodes. However, we can't address community without addressing the fact that the clients and staff are a part of one community. At every level, staff need to feel the impact that they are having on the lives of their clients just as much as they need to feel the impact that the clients have on them. Is there anything that you feel like? I think that we kind of speak the same language here, the staff and the clients, and we have these relationships that we've built, and we kind of create this space to look the way that we want it to. It's but love. It's not about love here, yeah. you know. My question is always, like, how do we take this love that we cultivate here and use it somehow outside of this space? Well, you're doing it. You're letting people speak their own mind, and then you're letting people really to tell people that it is okay because I am HIV positive, and me being HIV positive, um, it was a struggle for me in the beginning, but now I'm dealing with it, and I'm taking my medication, and I'm coming to see the doctor and taking these steps so I can be healthy, and I'm undetectable. So, so me being undetectable, it's like I, I'm living. You know, I'm not gonna die no time soon, and I'm living life, and I'm enjoying everything about life. The people here at API have been advocating for me too, and they've been helping me with everything. I can't stress this, stress the, to the point that how much this place is, is so appreciative. I mean, we can't stress enough how much that is felt in both directions, that like the, there would be no program if you didn't come faithfully every Thursday and if so many the women who come to TransAccess didn't come as often as they did. And there is definitely a real sense here of community and people wanting to be here and willingly being here. And do you feel like that has shifted anything for you when you're not here? Like, has the belonging to this group changed things for you in terms of your relationships outside of trans access? Do you have any contact with any of your family members? Yes. And how's that? I was molested when I was six years old. And that, uh, we told my, my, me and my sister told my mom 
that I was we was molested and she didn't believe us. So she believed him. So I held the resentment against my mother for all these years. Who is him? So his name is Jesse Harris. And he molested me and my sister when we were young. And then I had a resentment against my mother for all these years. And my mother just moved back to LA because her husband had died. Another man that she was with had passed away. So I called her up and she told me, I'm sorry that what things that happened the way it happened and the th things that you did that was happened that people did to you. I apologize that I wasn't aware of the situation. And I accepted her apology because that, that is my mother and you only have one mother, you know. And I love my mother dearly and she lived in Los Angeles in Orange County with my sister and me and my sister have an awesome relationship. And they both know that I turned transgender and they accept me for who I am. It's amazing after all these years to have that. Yeah. When did that happen? When did your mom apologize? She apologized to me a year and a half ago. And you've been working on your relationship with her ever yeah. since. Were you out to your family before you moved to San Francisco? No, I was homeless. I was living in downtown Los Angeles smoking crack cocaine. As Lorena points out, the benefits of identifying with the community extend beyond integration with a group and are felt in all aspects of our lives. For better or worse, for most of us, our first communities are our families. In her poem entitled Mama, Sean shows that we carry these foundational relationships with us. Mama, if I can't stop blaming you for everything that's happened to me, then how can I start the process of healing within my heart when the past is the only future I see? Mama, if I can't stop to notice you never meant for me to be 14 and homeless, then how can I start to process within my heart when the resentment renders me heated with coldness? If I can't stop sleeping in doorways with no play days over something you should have said but didn't say, then how can I begin to change within so that I never sleep outside again? Mama, if I can't stop accusing you for what happened to me behind your back, then how can I move past the past? find the right road to leave this destitution track. Mom, if I can't erase the screaming sounds of furniture being broken, you being knocked down, then how can you do what you do, forget that man and go again yet another round? And what about my baby sister, how she lost her innocence while you worked late night? And with tears on her face, she left without a trace, no childhood in sight. Mama, you took from me the man I could have been, so I changed my face, went to a safe place, and found another person within. Mama, this one thing I can say about the bridge between me and you is that the love beneath was way too deep. Something, something, something. something. Anyway, it would go on and on and on. That's one, that's... I mean, it could be, and it, you know, parts of it is me, parts of it is I've seen through other people's eyes, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that one, I think I, if I really sat down and it would be a tearjerker for me, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. To really um, recount some things, you know, and get it out therapeutically, you know. You know what? And now with that, Walden House, mm -hmm. when I first got there, they was having this talent show, and I just joined in, and I wrote this poem, and I ended up coming in first place, right? Mm -hmm. So after that, I wanted to write other poems, but I didn't want them to be the same type of genre that I wrote the first one in, like, so I had to really train myself. I quit smoking cigarettes for about four months, and I would, as I would exercise, I would do my poems while I was exercising to just get up stamina and win because it takes a lot of, you know, do, 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 you know, mm -hmm. and your delivery got to be like this, and it, it it would really be interesting to really pursue a spoken word type of hobby or whatever mm -hmm. 
you know, I think it's, it's a good outlet. It's important to remember that with all of these obstacles in our lives, we each have our own individualized coping mechanisms and our own outlets to helping us move forward. Each of the individuals we interviewed today had a deeply personal approach to cultivating this inner sense of resilience. In conversations about health, we often forget to ask what sustains you. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, and mentally as a person, what sustains you. Music is a huge part. Music has been the one positive constant in my life. Um, I don't know if I can say that about any other thing. Positive, negative, rocky roads, and then a couple of good friends that I've known for the last 25 years or so. This is the constant. Music has been that constant from the beginning to now. What's your passion? <laughs> Baby. Baby. That <laughs> music, music yes. is my passion. Entertainment is my passion. I mean, I'm passionate about. That's why I became a therapist. Healing. It's taken me. I've done a lot of work on myself. A lot of healing has happened, and especially the last four years. Sometimes when we're having these conversations about traumas in the past and like what's happened with drug use in the past and coming out of it, you were saying that there was still a void in your heart. And I think sometimes we forget to ask what is motivating people spiritually and where that sense of power from within is coming from because you definitely have it. And so what do you attribute that perseverance to? Why did you keep advocating for yourself and asking for what you deserve? Like what was motivating you from the inside? I have a high power. And I do believe in God, but I also believe in energy and energy will the world like negative energy and positive energy. And for me, I don't like being down in the slump. I don't like being homeless. I don't like being without money. So I always been responsible to advocate for myself. I advocate for myself so I can provide a better life for myself. It's hard, but it's it's worth it. What is something that you feel like has kept you? moving forward and deciding to get back on your medicine and deciding to be clean. What do you attribute your resilience to? Well, I would say going to Deb, but the people around Deb are just as eager to help. That makes it nice because you don't find that. So I guess it's the whole program. I've come a long ways from where I was to where I'm at now. So, and I'd rather keep going and turn back. It makes more sense to go back now. Scott's idea of resilience really summarizes many of the opinions felt by everyone in this episode regarding movement. Regardless of the obstacles in the past or even our current outlook, it's really important to not turn back. We need to keep moving forward with all of the tools, the community, and the support we have at our disposal. I think that I would want people to know that there is really a God. There's a definitely higher power. There's definitely something that has allow me to even come to where I'm at, which is nowhere to brag about or speak on, but there's definitely a God. Um, and what I think I'll have people, what I want them to know about me, in the end, I think that for whatever reason, I'm one of those people that I'm going to make it beyond my circumstances. Going to, things can only get better. The optimism Sean describes is something cultivated by inner strength, but also this idea of community a concept that can be a protective bubble to the many harsh realities and the roadblocks in our lives. Although our definition of community may look different or even vary in size, we see the benefits to be the same. By looking at the protective factors of health, we can truly be able to deliver client-centered care that supports our clients. Although we may never be able to remove the rocks in the water for our clients, we can better equip them to traverse the river.
Our clients all have strengths to sustain them, but our role as providers is to help reinforce these paddles. And the best way to do this is to show folks the strengths they always already have. In doing so, we can build a bridge of understanding on a deep human level and begin to dissolve the historical barriers between patient and provider. Instead, we create an environment of community-centered care that focuses on a shared emotional connection. Thank you for tuning in to Episode 1 of Season 2 of the Community Exchange. We will continue these themes in our next episodes. In Episode 2, we will focus on the role of the prison industrial complex in our clients' lives and the far-reaching effects of this system. Stay tuned.